You are listening to the Montreal Sessions on CKUT 90.3 FM. On August 9th, August 16th, and August 23rd, the Montreal Sessions will be hosted by the Mutech Festival, giving listeners a unique insight into the festival's 2022 edition. You can find us at montreal.mutech.org and ckut.ca. Stay tuned. Matthew Raymond, and welcome to the first edition of Mutech Dialogues. This podcast miniseries aims to explore the conceptual arcs and creative rhythms that connect the diverse musicians, artists, and practitioners that make up the festival this year. For this episode, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Orphix and Diagraph to discuss their upcoming AV performance, Underworld, which will be featured at Mutech this year. Using infrasound and VLF speaker technology, Underworld exposes the brutal physicality of sound through an exploration of inaudible and powerful sub-bass frequencies. In this conversation, we touch on chaos and risk, improvisation, the unconscious, the relationship between discomfort and transcendence, and much more. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed being a part of it. I just wanted to begin with the collaborative project that you guys are working on um, that will be shown at Mutech this year called Underworld. And I was hoping that you give me a bit of a sense of what this project is about and kind of how you all got together to start working on it. Rich, do you want to take this? Yeah, I'm um, sure. So I'm trying to remember how it came about. I think like we... San Francisco, so, I think. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, no, we've collaborated with Pat before. Um, yeah, Mutech in, in San Francisco. But this specific project, um, I think, came out of um, working with Live Lab in, in Hamilton, which is um, it's like a research institute um and theater at mcmaster university and the um, they they study uh, the cognition of music and sound and <clears throat> so we had we had done like a performance for them in 2016 i want to say um that was more exploring like the surround sound capabilities in there they have um a program that it's pretty sophisticated in how you can move individual sounds around the room. Space map. Space map, right. So we we did a performance based around that. And um, then we talked to them about doing something again for 2019. And I think they had, they had said something about um, having access to these VLF speakers that can produce um, ultrasound. Um, so sounds below the threshold of hearing. So we were really uh, excited about that idea and then kind of developed a concept around it and um, immediately thought of it as something that could be audiovisual and then immediately thought of working with Pat again. So then we invited him to collaborate. So that was, that was the genesis of it anyway. Cool. Yeah. Um, I want to definitely go back to the um, the very low frequency speaker stuff. Um, but I wanted to ask a little bit just about the, the title, the underworld and, and what the, the kind of the thematic 
kind of pull of of the project is. So so what it, what is the underworld concept uh, kind of related to, and and how do you feel um, that that kind of fits into the the composition or the or the kind of performance of the piece? Right. So um, in my mind, it was like thinking about um, using ultrasound and then how it had this kind of um, almost like extrasensory quality because, you know, it's not through the eardrums. It's like you're, it's vibrating your body. It's vibrating the room around you, space around you. And um, yeah, so it, I don't know, it immediately kind of made me think of this kind of invisible world idea, like what we, what we can't see or what we can't know um, fully. So it has this mysterious kind of quality to it. And um, yeah, and I, I think about, I was thinking about the different ways that ultrasound's been used, like- it, um, infra, Infrasound, I think. Is it infrasound or ultrasound? Yeah, yeah, infra, yeah. I think, yeah, it's, it's early yeah. morning. Okay. Thank, so you, thank you, thank you. I just wanted to catch you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not enough coffee, not enough coffee, infrasound. Right, yeah. so, um, yeah, so I was thinking about, you know, it's been used in like haunted houses to, because it has, it could, Austin has like an unsettling quality or, um, you know, developed into sonic weapons by the U.S. military and others. Um, I think, you know, it's been linked to like large industrial projects and people having some sort of physiological response to those or wind turbines or what, what have you. Um, so, I don't know, I just started thinking about, um, yeah, that those kind of qualities of, of, uh, of the idea. And then, um, yeah, I don't know, led in, into this kind of underworld idea um, and uh, it ties into art. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say we, we were tying that into um, Orphix as well in this exploration of Orpheus. Right, right. Yeah. So, yeah. so this, the, 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 the myth of, of Orpheus um, descending into the underworld and, and gaining knowledge or being transformed by the, by the process. That was sort of like a theme that we've returned to a number of times and um yeah it's connected to the name of the project and um yeah so it's, it seemed like like uh yeah that's kind of a recurring theme that we could kind of focus on for for this project and so um yeah the, the underworld idea also like connecting to like um you know ideas of the unconscious like thoughts or feelings that are at work but you don't really grasp them fully um I like that idea too. Yeah. yeah. Had kind of multifaceted uh, um, ideas behind it. Yeah. I was wondering also if there was like at, at all a reflection on kind of notions of the underground and the underworld and, and trying to think about how, you know, in spaces like industrial techno um, rave, there's this kind of kind of complex relationship between like the dystopic and the utopic sometimes. Like it can feel as if, you're entering like, you know, almost like Hades, right? So we're talking about Orpheus, like mm -hmm. the, the Greek underworld is, is not a place which, which is kind of just good or bad, like in a Christian kind of imaginary, but yeah. you have this kind of complex space of both kind of like a paradise, like paradise and kind of the, the utopic elements and then some of the dystopic elements. And I was wondering mm -hmm. whether that, that resonates with, with part of the project or at least with your experience kind of in, in these spaces. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I mean, like that, in my mind, I kept framing it more in terms of like, um, like death psychology, you know, so like the underworld, like you said, isn't, um, 
you know, a space of evil or whatever, but it, it's something that's, that's complex. It has its dark and light aspects and, um, you know, there's something you can gain from it. It's not just like a, a place you want to avoid. Yeah. I know Rich, you talked a lot about when we were first discussing it about the unconscious as well too. So, you know, that part of it, but I think that's a really interesting idea um, that you bring up about this idea of, of, um, techno and the underground and this idea of utopia and, and dystopia rolled into one though. I think that's um, in, an interesting um, way to look at it and, you know, maybe kind of just ties into the, you know, how we're dealing with the the music and rhythms um, as well too, um, in our own unconscious way maybe. But um, uh, I know that the, the live lab actually did um, research based on on the infrasound while we performed and um and actually um found that these the the unheard um infrasound um elements inspired movement so it created more movement in the audience based on the rhythms that were made with some of the infrasound um elements which is i think also a kind of interesting way to tie in to that idea of yeah, just so to to go to a kind of a formal level um, in terms of the performance, is it um, a improvised performance or is it is is this kind of a compositional piece? A, a bit of both, I think. You know, for all, for all three of us, that there's like there's something that we've planned in advance and structured, but there's lots of room to improvise. And and so Pat, from your perspective, um, how how is it that you? Uh, you know, when when you are kind of engaging with um, these kind of ideas and, and sounds that are being put forward, um, how do you kind of prepare and 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 get involved in in the in the process and and use the sound to kind of yeah is it, is a process of of translation from sound to image is is it you know how would you describe that how that happens yeah it's uh it's it's a process of uh, representation it's uh, I mean. At, at the root of it, my process is largely improvisational. It's a, a synesthetic representation of, of what I'm hearing. Um, there's a, a part of it that's uh, structured. Uh, at the beginning, I, I have a bank of images and uh, techniques that I can use, but then uh, it's, it's very reactive. Um, the idea is to try to paint or draw out uh, what I'm hearing with the, the tools and the processes that I prepared, and um, and we have a very good communication. I would say, uh, I feel like uh, we tend to work well together to, I guess, tell the same story. Yeah, I loved I love that you use the word synesthetic there because I think it ties together kind of this discussion that we're having around kind of sound and and infrasound, but also the other kind of modalities of the body, and you know it in a way, like, especially also that reactive kind of component, right? That there's this sense in which um, there's a kind of a, like a sonic event kind of taking place and various bodies are kind of responding and your specific body, I suppose, is like right. taking my that and <laughs> taking my that specific body is interpreting it in a certain way. And then, <laughs> yeah, uh, you're like live painting. <laughs> yeah, that's very much what it is. Oh, yeah. Uh, the live painting is a good description because Patrick's visuals are incredible that way I mean I when we first worked with Patrick in San Francisco that's I think how Rich and I both felt about Patrick's work it's it's 
really quite beautiful in the work for this particular piece. Um, it, it's very painterly, I would say, Patrick, and the way that uh, your visuals respond to some of like the infrasound and the breaking down of the images is just really, um, uh, yeah, it's so painterly, it's beautiful. <laughs> so I find that um, your music, their music is, is uh, for electronic music, it's, it's, it's got a very raw textural quality. There's, there's a grittiness to it and, and always the interplay of light and dark. And these are the things that, that speak to me as a visual artist. Um, and so I have uh, a bank of, of textures, noise uh, generators that respond to some of the, the different frequencies. And, and then I just, I play them as I would an instrument and I, I layer them out to try to represent what I'm, I'm hearing at that moment. And uh, for this project, uh, what else, uh, what I did is I, I got a lot of classical artwork also. Um, based on the myth of Orpheus and it's all uh, paintings and statues and engravings and they kind of fade in and out of existence along with this other more textual uh, work and it just seems to fit yeah. yeah it's cool to think about this kind of improvisation across yeah these sensory modalities I find that really fascinating as a as a as both a kind of like creative challenge but then also I assume like I guess for Rich and Christina, are you able to see the visuals as you're moving through your part of the improvisation? Like, is there a feedback? Because it sounds like there's a feedback loop that goes from sound to visual, but is there a, is there a loop that goes from visual to sound as well? Uh, not so far because usually, you know, you've got the projection behind you. So the best you can do is occasionally like glance and see what's yeah. going on, <laughs> um, which, which is unfortunate because it would be great if we could probably see and, and complete the loop. Um, yeah. Yeah, but I anticipate it'll be the same kind of setup when we when we play in Montreal. That it'll be you need to do it in the sat dome so you can be surrounded by the... Exactly, well, that's what we wanted. We yes. really wanted the, the dome. Oh, true. Been yeah. Absolutely perfect. And in addition, like, um, when we first did this uh, performance at Live Lab, we, um, we were using Space Map as well, too. So moving the sound around the dome. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um. I wanted to go back to the to the infrasound kind of level again um, and uh, ask just a little bit more about the kind of the uh, maybe get a description of the kind of the physiological effects of, of infrasound and and why they're so creatively kind of interesting. Um, we've talked a little bit about the the role of the the body and but I'd like to just hear a little bit more about that. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I mean, I'm just trying to re remember some of our experiences when we were first working with it. And um, certainly there was some discomfort after, like, cause we had, um, Christy and I had quite, a, I guess like a couple of weeks to, to prepare something. And we were quite, yeah, we, we live close to McMaster University. More. So we could yeah. go in there and, and um, plan some stuff in, in the theater with the speakers. And um, yeah, we, we started to get like a little bit, um, like some headaches and uh, just a little unwell after, after a few days of this. Um, so that was interesting to note. Um, and I certainly had people who read the performance who were saying that they um, felt this kind of like uneasiness at certain points. Um, but yeah, it seems like everyone reacts a little differently to it. Um, 
and the, and that's and that's interesting. And also the the effects on the space, right? So there's certain frequencies that'll start resonating the room, and that was uh, another thing that we were noticing with what was happening when we we're playing with that. So it'll be interesting in this space to see what how it reacts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that in yeah, in addition to this kind of um like the the research that they were doing in the lab on the the, the idea of of movement and being um influenced and affected by something that you don't hear that you're just kind of feeling and experiencing with your body. I think that um you know happens like Rich was saying, you know, differently for um for different people, but um, I guess um, overall, as as part of the the research, this um, it um, it did have a, um, an effect on um, the audience by um, feeling this like, need to to move um, and and a, a response, even though it wasn't being heard. Like this, uh, it increased like a the the um, that that movement response. Um, in the audience, which I thought was um, interesting as well, too. Um, and I think, you know, some people might have that sort of slightly, um, you know, disconcerting feeling, whereas others might um, feel a bit more of it as a, a, a vibration of, you know, something um, tingling or like that kind of, in, it does inspire that kind of movement um, feeling. So it might, you know, have some slightly negative or maybe uh, positive um, impressions, just depending on the audience. Yeah, it's interesting member. to think about this kind of space between comfort and discomfort, because um, I know that, you know, there are a lot mm -hmm. of kind of the, like the musical language that, that are in your kind of your history and, and the kind of the influences were not, they're not designed necessarily to always be comfortable experiences. And I thought it was interesting the way you described it as this kind of, uh, the almost the desire to create these kind of distinct physiological effects as being part of the, the aesthetic kind of goal of the work. And, and so is there, was that, is that part of the, is, is there a kind of mm -hmm. reflection here on the, almost like the, the, re the relationship between the music and, and, and this kind of idea of discomfort? Um, I would say for sure. I mean, that's, yeah, that's um, kind of been, as you mentioned, a running theme um, throughout our, our music and just kind of exploring the the boundary lines there. Yeah, and totally. Rich, I mean, what, what yeah, do you think? Yeah, I mean, that's always been an interest and it's like, I guess, part of the kind of musical history that we like feel connected to, um, which was about kind of pushing pushing boundaries in terms of performance and relationship between performers and audience and like you say using sound that's not just focused on something pleasing but it's just that's creating an experience for you that could even be unpleasant or too much overwhelming uh, and, and perhaps that unpleasantness changes to become some like an, another experience altogether. So pushes past being unpleasant to being something like, um, you know, um, completely different, you know, the, the pleasure and pain idea where uh, you have a sound that um, transforms. 
um, from, you know, an irritation or a, a pain into something that goes somewhere else, like a, a noise that turns into a drone that becomes hypnotic. Um, there's, you know, a bunch of different ways that could be. Um, yeah. It's almost shifted. like there's a thin line between the kind of like experience of like uncomfort or overwhelm and then the experience of something like transcendent or ecstatic. And it's, it's like kind of in that line that, that those experiences are, are kind of, um, that, that you kind of find yourself, uh, on that line in, in an experience of like really intensity, I think is, is kind of at the, at the core of this in some way. Yeah, absolutely. And I can think of like many personal experiences with sound systems and, or live performance that are, that are have that quality of just like this is almost too much for me to handle um and then it is just something like yeah ecstatic or transcendent like you said there's something uh very powerful even ecstatic in the in the the tension and then the release i think yeah patrick that actually that that brings me to another question kind of about about your work um and because one of the the things that's mentioned kind of in in the artist descriptions that I found was a sense of narrative kind of um and I was wondering if you could speak a little bit you know we have these kinds of very abstract kind of uh forms like forms dissolving like yeah dissolution tension release I was wondering like if you could tell me at what at what level you think about about narrative and and how that that idea of, of narrative kind of feeds into your work it remains very abstract, you know, or else perhaps I would have been a writer. Um, I, I do think always of the journey. I think of uh, starting somewhere and, and, and evolving uh, us uh, to bring us to another point. So the, the voyage and the journey is, is very important in, in everything that I do, whether it's a DJ set or a DJ set or, or it's more filmic. Um, it always does remain abstract, however. Um, I, I particularly like this project because it's easy to create this journey, right? So if we start with this beautiful source material that's uh, just not really, it's, it's one of the great stories. Uh, uh, the, the myth of Orpheus is, is fascinating to me. I don't want to spoil it. It's pretty tragic. Um, and um, so... I, d- I do tend to, to like those, uh, those projects where I can, I can craft that journey. And so do you often find that the sonic materials themselves that you're working with have a kind of visual narrative that you can kind of um, like I, I start to identify and then, and then mold it around? Like, is that kind of the experience that when you're listening to something, it starts to uh, become clear that there's some kind of narrative structure imminent or any kind of intrinsic. Yeah, I don't there. know if it's always clear, or if if I tend to draw it out, or if I if I tend to add it. Uh, I guess it depends on the relationship that I have with the artist that I'm working with. Right. Um, but uh, I, I do tend to uh, want one way or another to 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 try to take us on uh, on this voyage where somehow uh, there's these interesting transitions that leave us a little bit changed. Yeah. And I think that's like one of the things that like we share with Pat, you know, in terms of our approach and aesthetics is that um, we often have like a narrative element, even within an individual track or, or certainly in an album, like think about how this is going to flow, how you're going to, how it's going to work the, the order of everything. And, and each performance, like, you know, e- even though, 
there is, you know, much of it is improvised. There's still like a, a general flow to a, a structure to it that like put some thought into it. Yeah, like how we want the audience to feel and what kind of um, emotions or experiences we want them to move through within a particular set. Um, or as Rich mentioned, like individual track as well too. Yeah, it's fascinating how how both sides of the practice are kind of using, working at this level that's both kind of like very abstract, but then also very attuned to emotional processes and processes of the body. Like you have this kind of like interesting kind of conjunction of almost like, like um, uh, gradients or kind of like lines of intensity on the musical side and then like visual lines and shapes on the, on the, uh, on the visual side and, and some kind of other narrative elements and remaining at this level of abstraction and yet still having such a, such an impact on, on the body. Yeah, that's where things get really interesting. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, that's where we create this, you know, new experience, which is exciting when it works out. Yeah. Yeah. So on the question of working out, you know, I know it sounds like all three of you have a lot of experience in kind of improvisational practices. And I wanted to ask kind of a, a little bit about the kinds of uh, social relationships that that make improvisation possible. So how do how do you have to relate to the both the the your kind of fellow improvisers, but then also the relationship between the audience and and yourselves as artists like during improvisation? Um, so how how do you how do you think about that that kind of nexus of of relationships? Well, I guess in terms of other performers, it's like um, it's just something you learn over time. Um, but I think it, you know, requires like giving space to other people, um, and like to to be listening as much as possible. So, um, one of the challenges uh, I find is to, is to to always to be trying to stay present because you know you can get lost in you know trying to dial in a certain sound or you know, something's slightly off in your mind or you're trying to problem solve something. Um, and then that can take you out of being present, listening and, and, uh, and really being there to, and giving space for the people. So that's one of the challenges I think is as a performer. And for yeah. me, it's, it's a, uh, it's a lot like a, like a flow state. You know, I think it's like when yeah. you, when you meet people and, and sometimes you just have this immediate connection and you're able to have this beautiful free flowing conversation um, and other people, maybe even you don't have that same facility. And I think that the three of us, um, I feel have that where we, we can enter into that flow state together uh, amongst each other and also with an audience where communication uh, just is, is easy. Yeah, this, um, uh, you know, it's such an amazing feeling when things are coming together um, like that, when you're with a, you know, group of people where you can make that work. Um, I think, you know, for, for Rich and I, just because we've worked together for so long, we have, you know, as Rich was saying, kind of a sense of, you know, how to push and pull with that and um, be able to, you know, for the most part, like, um, recognize when we need to kind of pull back or, um, you know, leave space as he was saying. Um, 
but the, the audience is also a really key um, part of um, the improv um, as well too. And something that, um, in, you know, yeah, has such a huge effect on, you know, our whole experience of the performance. Um, and certainly something, you know, you know, that we've been missing for the last couple of years. Um, it's just, uh, it, it, you know, even makes creating difficult in some ways because the audience is such a big part of that feeling of, of creation and inspiration. And yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. As I listen to you all talk about improvisation, it occurs to me like what a beautiful kind of model it is for like, like, like almost like offstage, you know, in terms of like how we interact with each other. Like, do you feel like you've learned things that like kind of really transfer out of just this very specific kind of like making sounds with, with electronics and, and it's relevant to, to, you know, like a certain more general kind of field of your life? I think so. Yeah. I mean, only I think more recently I've really thought about that. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I totally agree. It is like a, it is a pretty beautiful model. Yeah. And there's a certain also like acceptance of of risk and and yeah. and trust that that goes into something like improvisation. Does it ever? Does that you know? All of you have had many of years of experience uh, putting yourself into that position where that where you're putting yourself in that risk and and requiring that trust. But I'm wondering if it ever still feels challenging like there are ever times that 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 like stepping out is uh is is a challenging thing uh oh for sure <laughs> i think it's i think that's part of why it's exciting and fun to do it's always challenging and but that's also part of yeah what, what makes it exciting and you know and the the risk and that feeling of you know slight trepidation is something is maybe not going where you want it. And then you're working as a group to shift it. And that's where like all that excitement comes in. You know, if it was all completely perfect to the whole experience, I, you know, it, it wouldn't have that same feeling. I, I, I don't think anyway. Yeah, totally. It reminds me again of the, that little line that we were talking about before between kind of uncomfort and, and kind of ecstasy or transcendence, you know, like it's like that, that same kind of phenomenon where, through the risk and kind of potentially the potential discomfort of things going badly, uh, it opens up the possibility that things can kind of like radically rewrite themselves relatively quickly and yeah. end up in a much better place. Yeah. Yeah. It's also those moments where uh, synchronicity happens, right? Where the magic happens. Yeah. So, so the, to be open to improvisation is to allow yourself to be open to those moments. They're, they're otherwise hard to accept. Totally. Yeah. Very cool. So just to continue on this line of improvisation a little bit more, I want to go a little deeper into this flow state experience because I was reading some articles uh, from kind of some earlier Orphics interviews and there was a discussion of the the transition from uh, kind of more analog gear to there was a period of time where kind of more digital gear was being used and it seems like there's been a kind of transition back and I'm sure this has been a kind of movement that... um, is still continuing to happen in some ways or that maybe it doesn't need to be settled in, in any kind of like one, one or the other type manner. Um, but one of the things that stuck out to me was that in the digital form, uh, it was kind of related to this idea of control. 
like moving from the state of the kind of the like chaotic analog machine to the digital form was related to yeah this idea that there could be more control over the formation of the sound mm-hmm. and as you've gone through this journey of you know using different kinds of gear in these two different planes of gear kind of more analog tactile more digital kind of uh, data focused or kind of per- perhaps we could relate it to cognitive in some way um, do you feel like you've landed somewhere on this question of control and the the that the role that control plays in in a creative process yeah, I, I think so. I think like, um, yeah, like you, you were saying, there's been periods, I think, particularly when I was doing the studio stuff by myself, um, the improvisational elements started to decline a little bit. And there was just, there was so much more possibility to, you know, kind of pre-program everything and, and tweak every nuance. But, um, you know, I always kept an element in there, like I, I would kind of improvise with mach- with the machines and then record and then go from there. Um, or, you know, always like drawn to processes and effects that have a certain random element in them. So that's, that's always been attractive. So even when it was becoming more controlled, there was still that element, but I think, um, yeah, maybe, yeah, it w- went a little too far in that direction. I started to miss miss those elements, and then uh, when Christy and I were starting to work together again, then um, you know that's certainly her interest is having stuff that's n- not not pre-programmed. That's that's so it, we kind of came back to the improvisation again. Um, I was just finding this again working in the studio recently, where I was fun- I was just realizing like how much more I enjoy um, starting with improvisation rather than starting with structure and, and building on top. So I had two tracks I was working on and one with the, with the with this approach of sort of having a structure that I built in, a, in Ableton and then formed on top of and another that started with improvising with gear. And I was like, oh, this is like night and day. Like, <laughs> why am I working this other way when it's so much more pleasing to have that as the foundation than with all the kind of, you know, accidents that happen when you're just, you know, mixing on the fly. And, yeah. yeah, I think that's the the key, the accidents. Yeah. <laughs> that, um, yeah. And often when, when Rich and I are just jamming, that's when, you know, and where we're often record when we're just um, jamming together. And that's when all of the like really interesting things happen that the, you know, maybe we might use that recording or we might take off on say some of the accidents and, and kind of rework them or move into them or explore that a little bit farther. But, you know, some of those things wouldn't have happened without that kind of um, element of chance or kind of exploration that happens in improv and or that kind of the, the elements of chaos where you're not um, kind of worried about having control over everything. Um, I think in in terms of um, kind of that movement from analog to digital to analog and kind of going back and forth. I mean, as Rich mentioned, there's still like 
things that can happen in within the digital to you know to create you know that those elements of chaos as well too or or um you know chance not necessarily completely you know attached to like say analog stuff it's just um maybe you have more hands-on control or or um openness through the the analog gear which might allow for you know other further accidents or um, kind of things to happen because you have so many elements that you can kind of move into at, at once. But um, yeah, I don't know if that's making any sense, but <laughs> no, for sure. That actually makes me want to ask Pat, you know, because it seems like the visual has migrated to the digital more readily in some ways than, than sound. Like there is a sense in which there's still a lot of sound being made on analog gear, but visual stuff seems computers have really, really taken the lead. So I wanted to ask a little bit more about your setup and and maybe how you feel you relate to this question of chaos control and how, how that works for you. Well, interestingly enough, my process is following a similar trajectory. Um, I, I tend to use less and less uh, pre-made, pre-rendered content and more and more uh, purely uh, generative content. And um, I, I also like having an element of randomness and chaos. And I like to... And this is true whether I'm making music or video, but uh, I, I like to build chains of uh, organic systems, uh, whether it's with sound effectors or it's uh, generative content. And so there is, uh, there are some surprises. There's some uh, unplanned uh, reactions, um, and then obviously with sound effectors, you end up with having uh, a very organic system that you know, you control, but not entirely. So yeah, it seems like it's we're following a similar, a similar path. Yeah, it's so cool how in a, in a certain way that whole question of analog digital can kind of drop out at a certain level, and it's really more about the kind of processes that are taking place. Depend, you know, the, the mediums seem like they're able to support the, these kind of organic or, or or generative processes at both levels. Um, but I was wondering also about about like how how does your body relate to to your work, like when you're VJing, for example, what's the the kind of setup like there? And and I assume there's a certain kind of tactility involved in that. There is. I mean, I, I play visuals the way I play music. I have a controller and I, I mix it like I would uh, if I was DJing with a mixer. There's a very tactile feel. Uh, and also, um, I'm I'm not only performing. I'm usually at the back, so I'm also part of the audience, right? So in a certain sense, uh, I you know, I represent not just the artist, but the audience as well. I like to think that the, the visual artist is a good grid. Yeah, it's, I, I'm, I'm just still thinking about this relationship between like what you said about organic processes and then kind of also the role of the body that I feel like we've been coming back to at the beginning as this almost this site of, of randomness or this site of, of chaos and, and transformation. It feels like that kind of ties in, you know, also from both the productive side, but also like you said, kind of from the audience side that there's a certain kind of like... Um, sense in which uh they're yeah i don't know i don't know if i don't know where i'm going with that exactly but there's, there's something going on in my body somewhere i guess <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean so the I physical guess. presence yes. of the audience is is really important that physicality i think sorry patrick i i cut you off no please go on <laughs> yeah no i'm i'm just thinking they think yeah I, I i totally uh get where you're going at because the the yeah the physical presence of the audience really is um you know, a huge part of that as well, too. And the it's kind of the way people move or respond. Um, 
But uh, yeah, in addition to like what P Patrick's talking about with, you know, being physically integrated into the, 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 the gear and the, um, the hands-on kind of movement and, um, you know, in response to the sound this is similar to, I guess, the audience as well, but, you know, also being kind of physically engaged in, in um, the, the morphing of the visuals and, and like um, we would with the sound, I know for me working with like, um, for me working with the analog gear is like um, key for me too, because I, I'm so tactile and like to be able to touch things and move and kind of like the sound is kind of a physical process for, for creation as well. Yeah, I think that really helps me get to where I was going, which was I think I had this vision of like the whole event as this kind of like physical kind of chaotic organism, you know what I mean? Where like each because it's like if the bodies are involved also in the creative process of the improvisation, they're almost like like their responses and also like the kind of the the energy in the room. Um, they're part of this whole kind of like chaotic system that is is developing itself kind of in time as this almost as a unit, like there's a kind of like almost like a holism there that like um, everybody kind of submits to this kind of this, this chaotic process in some way, or at least like if you're, if you're engaged in it, you know, and you kind of, maybe as audience members, you have this choice to kind of like really give yourself to it or not give yourself to it. But I assume as improvisers, you don't have that choice. You have to kind of like submit to the, the organism or something. But even as, as, <laughs> as the audience, you are part of that complex system, right? And, and the way you react becomes part of that system as well. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Yeah, we have no choice but to accept your reaction, whatever it may be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I just have a like a couple more questions. I think they're going to maybe take us off this this path. But I've been kind of investigating the Orphis discography uh, in preparation for this this interview, and I wanted to ask uh, you guys whether you felt that Orphis has throughout its kind of like like uh, it's, it's kind of historical kind of duration, whether you feel like there's been a kind of consistent language of Orphix or even a set of languages that have defined the project or whether there are kind of these moments that you can think of as being kind of discontinuous, like where the, a new iteration of the project comes out and a new kind of like a uh, new kind of sound set, new kind of like sonic language emerges. Because I think I was listening to the archival materials and then also Chrysalis and enjoying both so much and trying to understand like how these two kind of sets of work are related to each other. Cause at some level, um, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't figure this question out for myself. So I thought I would ask you. I guess it's one of those, it's, I'm going to say both, but um, pro probably the, a little bit more the first that I think there is sort of a consistent language. I would, I would struggle to articulate that, but I mean, um, I think there is something there. If I listen to the really early material and I listen to um, that one you just mentioned, that that there is there's certain sounds or types of sounds that are recurring, and that I think we both get drawn back to. Um, but yeah, and then certainly there's there's different phases um, where you can hear kind of new types of sounds or new new approaches coming in. Um, sometimes they stick around and sometimes they don't. Um, but yeah, I feel like there's sort of, um, there's kind of yeah, there's definitely recurring themes like conceptually. And then there's, there's recurring kinds of sounds, I think define it. And, um, 
so sometimes I, that can be limiting, you know, because if I, if we're approaching something that we think is going to fall under this banner, then then there's certain parameters around it, um, and we're trying to always play with that. But um, yeah, it sort of takes on a life of its own, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I would say it. You know, I think there's been consistency in yeah, like the like Rich said that you know some of the. Um, I, I would say more like the moods and the um, the underlying themes of the of the music, and I think because of that, the music has a consistency to it. But we're both, um, you know, really interested in exploring different ways of making sounds and um, and you know uh, structures, and that's what makes. Um, creating the music exciting as well too um and so there are going to be these kind of it's what nearly how nearly 30 years rich i don't know it's been a long time 30, 30 next yeah, year yeah so you know like i think it would be quite boring to stick with the the same kind of doing the same thing you know we've it's exciting to be like you, you know it, experimenting and, and and maybe that's kind of key to the sound as well too is this continual experimentation experimentation with sound making and structure um but but i would say and as rich mentioned I, I do think that the underlying themes because they are kind of throughout the music really do send tend to kind of tie it together um even in, in kind of you know with the the ultimate um, way it sounds. Yeah, I know we were talking about Mutech being an institution being around for 25 years. I'm going to give a shout out to Orphix for almost 30 years. <laughs> it's pr pretty incredible. <laughs> yeah. Mind yeah, well, yeah. It's, uh, we're cool. excited to be back for, for Mutech um, and always super excited to be um, uh, performing for Mutech because it has been such an institution and um, um, inspiring um, as well too from years of attending and uh, not just performing. <laughs> yeah, to go a little deeper into that that history, I, I wanted to ask also, you know, I noticed with the archival recordings kind of coming out in the last couple of years and also your most recent kind of um, more dance floor oriented record uh, was described as kind of calling back to early formative experiences kind of on the dance floor and and the role that that played in, in your own creative development. So it seems like the Orifice Project is at a time where memory and kind of the memory of, of, of those times has become an important theme. And, and I wanted to ask how you, how you situate that, that theme in, in your work, this kind of memory and this long, this very long duration of a, of a project like that. Yeah, I think, um, I think that's in part, was kind of a reaction to the pandemic and not touring and, and not performing was just sort of being yeah in the studio and finding it difficult to create uh new music especially music for dance floors that don't exist and um and so then uh for me anyway i was like oh well i can turn to these archival projects that have been you know i've been thinking about them for the last few years so um yeah there was the box set on on hospital and there was um you know the 
couple of tapes that I put out that were both you know, live recordings and uh, yeah. So all that material um, I think kind of came out of that experience. Um, but yeah, even as you said that, that uh, the more recent record of, of new stuff was also making reference back to the, the, the early years. So um, yeah, I think that's probably coming out of the pandemic and maybe also reaching this 30 year mark and sort of reflecting back getting a bit introspective uh, yeah i guess so yeah. take stock of the journey kind of and yeah what it's all yeah about. every once in a while <laughs> exactly. you do that you kind of re-explore and then it get inspired and, it, and then it shifts again into another direction and and sometimes that is quite um satisfying um yeah yeah yeah, I mean, yeah, for me, like the, the whole pandemic experience was some sort of identity crisis, including in music and including in, in this project. It's sort of like, okay, what, what's next and, you know, where to go from here? And like Christy said, like, um, particularly that, um, you know, that box set, like going through all that material and, and uh, kind of like, it, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing with music that it can call up so many memories. There's like so many pieces of music I can listen to and I, I can be transported back to when I first heard it or when it was like a pivotal thing in my life. And um, that was the case here where it was like, oh, shit, I'm in 1993, 94 again. And um, it was actually really inspiring to, um, to, to remember those, those early days of making music when there were no expectations of what this project is or any expectation that anyone's going to even hear it or, um, you know, come to a show or anything like that. So no rule. that's, yeah, that's really quite freeing to not have to think about those, how, how it's going to be received or, or anything. It's just sort of like just the creative process. Yeah. And so do you think, do you think you've ahead. held on to the, to that feeling? Like as, so we're, we're back out, you know, parties are happening again, you're in front of audiences and stuff like that. Do you think that that experience of reflection has a, has a certain kind of staying power for the, the, the future of the project? Oh yeah. No, I mean, I think you, in order to create, you always have to have a, a bit of that kind of like fresh, fresh start feeling. Um, and yeah, there's definitely been points where I've lost it and I'm like, I feel like I'm, I'm making music for a deadline and for uh, a few hundred euro to, to, to pay bills and, and I'm not really, I'm not really in that place. And uh, to some extent, I think you, you have to get there. So that was a good process to kind of reconnect with like uh, an earlier version of, of myself and an earlier version of, of this project and, and kind of keep that there. So, and yeah, I mean, and just the experience of, to, of being able to perform again was, was incredible. Like each, you know, it's only been a handful of shows, but uh, each one has just been like, it feels like a, a blessing. To be, to be honest, like, yeah. Thanks for tuning in to Mutech Dialogues. Don't forget to get your festival tickets at montreal.mutech.org.
You are listening to CKUT 90.3 FM, and this is the Montreal Sessions, hosted by the Mutech Festival. You can find us at montreal.mutech.org and ckut.ca.
Thanks for tuning into Mutech Dialogues. Don't forget to get your festival tickets at montreal.mutech.org.